just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello, and welcome to The Spectator's Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and in this week's podcast, I'm joined by Ursula Buchan, who will be well known to many readers of the magazine as a superb writer on gardening. But this time, we're talking about her work as a biographer. Her new book is a biography of her grandfather, John Buchan, and it's called Beyond the 39 Steps. Welcome, Ursula. Very nice to be here. Thank you for asking me, Sam. Well, the first, and I hope it won't seem an impertinent question to ask, is where you know, what made you think, I'd like to write a biography of John Buchan? Because, of course, there are a few in existence. Was this an act of grand filial piety? Or <laughs> no, really, really not. But there hadn't been one for 25 years. And I was... About a few years ago, I decided to have, you know, when the when all the sort of whirlwind of career-making and child-rearing is over, I decided to read the canon or as much of it as I could find. And there's a lot of it. And there's a lot of it, more than a hundred books, more than a thousand articles, many of them, of course, for The Spectator. And I um, I, I read lots of things I'd never read before. I'd read the short stories, but not for a long time. The war poetry I'd never read. I'd never read The Political Thought, and I certainly hadn't read the legal textbook. And I hadn't read all the, the serious biographies of Walter Scott, Cromwell... Uh, I had read uh, Montrose, but years and years before. So anyway, my thoughts became more more insistent that he he was beginning to become just the junior partner of the great Alfred Hitchcock. People knew him really only as the man who wrote the 39 Steps and not even spelt the right way with numbers, not not letters. Yes. Um, And um, that seemed to me to be, you know, just completely unfair. I mean, you know, innovative as the 35, 1935 Hitchcock film was, there was just so much more to John Buchan. And so I decided to write a, a, another history, not a, not a work of literary criticism, but definitely trying to, to explain why it was that he was such a figure before the war, a man who, when he died in 1940, in February 1940, during the Phony War, while he was in harness, while he was Governor-General of Canada, the editor of the time said he had never received so many letters of sorrow, really, from the general public after a public figure had died. So he, uh, it seemed to me that it was everything was out of print. Everything biographical was out of print. Uh, the Janet Adam Smith 1965 biography, my father's memoir of... 82, Andrew Loney's excellent Presbyterian Cavalier in 95. It was time to reintroduce him, really, to another another generation. To be back. Now, as you say, he was a huge figure in his own lifetime. I wonder what sort of figure he was, you know, as you were growing up, obviously, he was sort of a family figure. You didn't know him yourself. You knew his widow, Susie. You know, what was your sort of apprehension of him and how did that differ, if you like, from the sort of outside idea of, of Buckingham. Well, um, I, I wasn't really terribly conscious of him until 
the age of 10, when my twin sister and I went to the local village hall to play bingo for the first time. And I, I know this is a ridiculous memory, but we both have it. So, uh, so I don't think it's a false one. And uh, we we were fascinated by the man taking the numbers out of the out of the bag and saying, you know, you know, eleven legs eleven, and then um, thirty nine all the steps. And we were astonished that this book that had been published, I don't know, fifteen fifty years before, and was really something to do with our family. That's you know, we were we knew about him, but not much. Was famous enough, you know, his. Best book was famous enough, or best known book was famous enough to be a bingo call, and and that's really when it it struck me that this man had a sort of public persona. It wasn't just a family thing. And what? But how was he seen in the family? I mean, was he was he a, a great sort of exemplar with people always talking about him? Were they saying you know he was this? Because well, he obviously seems to have been a good egg. I mean, was he seen as a sort of? Yes, and and our grandmother, who was the matriarch of the of the family, she was doing all she could to keep his memory green at a time when he was thoroughly out of fashion after after the Second World War. But um, my my father my father and mother were divorced when I was small, so my, and my mother had never known him. She didn't meet my father till after the war. So uh, we we had the, the the secondhand stories that she'd heard from my father, but not very much. The books were on the shelf, and we were very much encouraged to read them. The first one I read, actually, was The Three Hostages, which begins with that lovely sort of pastoral scene in, in Oxfordshire, which, of course, I knew, because I lived in Oxfordshire too, and uh, so I was off, really, uh, after that. But, um, I, you know, there were certain family stories, but m- m- until I read Janet Adam Smith's biography, I really didn't know a lot about him. Yeah. I mean, you t- you talk at one point early in the book about saying that in the process of researching this, there was the sort of crump sound of myths collapsing. Which well, made the biggest crumps? Jan Smuts firing five times at him in, the, in the South Africa. Um, he was a trooper for a short time. When he was a colonial administrator, he was uh, called out from time to time with the Rand rifles when there was guerrilla warfare around... Jo- jo- they were protecting Johannesburg uh, towards the end of the Second World War. And um, the story was that they were ambush- ambushed by a Boer commando and Smuts fired five times as they galloped away. Well, that's all very well, but Smuts wasn't run near Johannesburg at the material time. So they became good friends, Smuts and John Buck, and during the First World War. Uh, uh, Smuts, obviously, you know, uh, uh, commanding uh, some of the South African forces, and uh, John Buck, uh, uh, dire- uh, war- wartime director of propaganda. But uh, I don't believe that they had anything to do with them, each other in South Africa. So that's, that's just one yeah. of it, you know. No, I mean, you've given it the title of Beyond the 39 Steps, and as you say, you know, he's he's sort of remembered, you know, it, when he is remembered now for this. You know, I, had book, to, book, I, he, I had to call it. You that. had to have the one 39 yes, Steps in the title, of course. But, but, you know, it, there is such a colossal sort of hinterland. As you say, there's 100 books or so, and he wrote, but also he had a kind of career in public life, a career... I mean, well, he was deputy editor of the Spectator. For he a was deputy editor of the Spectator. Editor. Editor. Or assistant editor, wasn't he? Was or it, was it assistant? I think yes, it was assistant editor. Yes, I think you're probably. I know. I was very keen to. She said, "Oh, if you've got Ursula, and you must ask her what he's uh, what he I'd actually did to, for us." I'd have to still check. Unclear, but, well, um, I mean, he did for Saint Lo Strachey. While he was a barrister, he 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 
he paid for it really for his training by writing for the Spectator and other periodicals. And so that's when we paid better. <laughs> Possibly. Um, and when St. Lowe who actually had some political ambitions, when he was away or he was going to Queen Victoria's funeral, that sort of thing, he was quite a public figure, Strachey. JB would, uh, would deputise for him. But I think a chap called Charles Graves actually was the deputy editor. And um, JB assisted, we all, we all call him JB. The family's always called him JB. And I call him JB in the book, actually. Yeah. Assisted Charles Graves. Charles Graves was rather an interesting man, actually. He wrote a lot for Punch. He, during the First World War, he had a sort of genius for, for comic verse. And I quote his verse about, or part of it, about John Buck and when, you know, at The Spectator, which is quite fun. He's very, very funny. So it was, it was a small organisation, The Spectator now, uh, then, but they were, it was a very happy one. But when he married, he needed really to earn more money. So he gave up The Spectator, except he continued to contribute, but he was no longer a salaried employee and uh, went to work for Thomas Nelson and Son, the publishers with offices in Edinburgh and London. He worked in London. That was a more sort of regular form of income, really. But he continued to write for The Spectator, really, actually, on and off all his life. But this sort of... I mean, in, if the central gravity of his life... I mean, maybe you all say this was the writing. I mean, is that something that went on? I mean, sort of dismayingly... I think his first novel was published when he, before he went up to Oxford, wasn't it? Or, or thereabouts. Yes, Sir Quixote of the Moors, which you may not have read, came out, came out <laughs> in 1895. It's about covenanters in 17th century Scotland. Yes, and um, another one came out in 1900. I mean, yes, yeah, he started very, very early. In fact, he even had a who's who entry when he was at Oxford, where his, uh, his occupation was, was put as undergraduates. <laughs> so he was he was making a splash, even in his Oxford days. And he was writing constantly through his life. I mean, I, I, th- I think there's some description again in his Oxford days where he says, well, you know, well, I'm pretty idle. You know, I get about 10 hours work done during the day and then I'm just lying around drinking cider. Yes, <laughs> yes quite, quite. I mean, I, it was a very monastic existence in Oxford in the last years of the 19th century, I think. So um, they weren't distracted by girls much because they, they they just weren't there though his high-mindedness there's a couple of touching stories about how you know he's sitting in his room you know doing something scholarly and this kind of crowd of rowdies it reminded me of the beginning of decline and fall come, <laughs> yes, come turn yes, all exactly. the furniture upside down and demand whiskey quite quite but but he he even then he had charm and wit he would not have attracted the likes of raymond asquith and Tommy Nelson and people like that, if if he hadn't had rather more to him than the sort of duh Scots, you know, sort of scholar. Uh, the key to me, to the reason why he both wrote and had a public life, is his religious convictions. It wasn't enough for him to be in an ivory tower. And I do say somewhere, I mean, I may be wrong, that I think that if he had just concentrated on writing... He, he might have written a great novel, he ne- which he never did. But he, did ne- he never gave it the prominence, particularly with the thrillers, actually, which he wrote very quickly, and sometimes you could see they're written very, very quickly. But he didn't feel that he would be doing good in the world just by writing. Do you think he was annoyed in any way that, that the thrillers 
but I'm sure he was pleased that they brought him you know money and fame and success. But was he was he annoyed in a way that that was what drew down so much of the attention on it? I mean that that those were what lived. I mean I think you described saying towards the end of his life you say you know had he lived he would have continued writing you know shockers for relaxation serious histories for his legacy yes. you know, that he was thinking yes. about his legacy he being was. serious histories oh, yes, but, but so. they aren't you know i mean no. during his lifetime did he have that sense and was he vexed by it i do don't think? think he was vexed I, he was rarely vexed i think he was pleased that that they made him money and and also i think he quite liked the fame but but it it, it didn't really worry him that 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 his that his people liked him for for his novels. Actually, he's, he in one talk he gave, or it might have, I can't remember whether it's something he wrote, but he said, you know, I, I, I write to interest and amuse myself, and therefore I I must confuse my readers who expect, you know, every year they they buy my my latest novel before they go on their summer holidays, and it must bemuse them that they think they're going to have a Hanny story and they have a Dixon McCunn story or they have a historical novel because he was suiting himself. Yeah, so he wasn't writing, writing to the market in a cynical way. Well, well, he knew what the market was. His work as literary editor for Thomas Nelson gave him a very good appreciation of what public taste was, was like. But he, he was still suiting himself. He, you know, he just he would go on these enormously long walks, and the plots would 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 come to him, and then he'd come home and you know write them down at dictation speed, very often. Only, so, only Barbara Cartland had that trick, otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The one one thing you you say that's I think intriguing. You know, people who look for him. In the characters, you say, you know, people think identify Hanny with Buchan. He's mm. absolutely not, because you know Hanny's much coarser, more yeah, you know, robust, kind of robust and colonial. Character. Yes, yeah. and Edward Leithen, you say very definitely, you know, is not is not Buchan either. He's Did he more, put himself well, he's in more his like, at all? He's, he's more, more like, like Buchan, I think Leithen probably is the you know the the slightly desiccated bachelor lawyer who discovers in the end in the in in the last book, Sick Heart River. Do you call his best book? Uh, well, uh, one of his best. Though JB didn't know he was dying then, he was probably living sub specie, aeternitatis. His duodenal ulcer was getting worse and worse. Rudyard Kipling had died of a burst duodenal ulcer in 1936. He knew it could happen to him at any time. So he is. He lived with that for a long time. Oh, yes, yes, yes oh, kind of 30 years. Yes. Yeah. Yes, most of his adult life. And it's one of the reasons why he is such a remarkable person. Because most people, if they feel sick and their tummy aches all the time, don't do what he did. And in those days, nobody knew what to do about it. I mean, he had an operation in 1917 to bypass. didn't work, really. But nowadays, antibiotics uh, cure these ulcers pretty quickly. But... but you know, there weren't antibiotics. So I can't remember what the question was. Oh, it was, it was to do with how much he put himself... I mean, actually, he put his ulcer into a character in Greenmantle, didn't he? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes, um, yes. So that's, um, yes, John S. Lencaren, who who's a rather sort of likeable, Bible-quoting American who, who seems to change his job all the time. He's either a spy or he's a businessman or he does all sorts of things. He also plays Patience, which JB did. 
as well. So, so you know, well, his characters have aspects of him, but they, they aren't him. They're not autobiographical, I don't, I, I don't think. And what, what was his character? You've talked about the importance of his religion. Was this a sort of, as you say, one of the, one of the biographies called you know, Presbyterian? Did his extraordinary work ethic come from that, do you think? I think it must have done. I, I think the key, well, for me, the key to John Buchan is in his childhood and youth. Born in Perth, but at uh, age three months, he his father was called to a free kirk in Pothhead, which is an industrial parish uh, next to Kakodi on the Fife coast. Then when he's 13, his father is called to the John Knox Church in the Gorbals in Glasgow, which in the le- end of the, 18, of the 19th century was one of the worst slums in Europe. And JB went to school in the Gorbals. So... And he was part of a, you know, a loving and intelligent, well-read family. But they were, you know, all the talk was of, you know, church work and sales of work and Sabbath schools. And they went to, to church three times on Sunday. And, you know, it was just his landscape. And so, and all, all his, um, I mean, his brothers were similarly affected, really. Uh, one brother was a very hard-working Indian civil servant who... who came back with some horrible thing from on leave, age 32, and died in Glasgow. And Is that Willie? Willie? That was Willie. Yeah. And Walter was the town clerk and procurator fiscal of peoples for decades. So they, you know, the, the, they had the work ethic, all, all of them. But you none said, of I them... I mean, Beckham was a Scot who spent most of his life outside Scotland, though, wasn't he? Did he take Scotland with him a bit? Very much. I mean, he always said he had Scotland at the back of, of his head. And he did. And um, when he died, the Canadians thought he would be buried in Scotland. But in fact, he wasn't. He was buried in the village where he lived near Oxford, Ellsfield. But yes, and, and he goes on writing Scottish characters all, all, through his, all through his life. And Sir Walter Scott, which I think he, you know, Montrose, those biographies, they, you know, he was trying to explain Scotland to everybody else. Yeah, and in literary terms, you write that you know when he was growing up, sort of Scott and Stevenson were the oh, sort of cr- crucial. And, Bur- and Burns, and, and Burns, Burns yeah. of course. And his his father was a very interesting man. Actually, he was a great storyteller, and he knew all the border ballads, whether they'd been published or not. And JB had this really serious accident when he was five years old. He fell out of a carriage and the back wheel went over his head. And that's why in all the photographs you can see this enormous bump on his forehead, which came from this this accident. And he spent several months, nobody knows, I don't know exactly how long, but possibly as long as a year, in bed, not being able to do anything. And I feel certain his father sat with him and and told him stories and and sang to him and all, all of that. And also, I mean, both Stevenson and Scott spent quite a lot of their childhoods as invalids. And it seems to me quite likely that imaginative children become more imaginative as a result of that enforced idleness. Yes. Also, it suggested maybe that Buchan, you know, for so much as, as you write, what drove Buchan's fiction 
was a sense of landscape and place. I mean, you know, whether it be the you know, Hindu yes. Kush or the Scottish Lowlands, it was... Particularly the borders. Because yeah. he, his mother came from Upper Tweedale and they spent all their Scottish... their summer holidays there. And it's hugely important, f- formative for him, those holidays when they got away from the smoke of Glasgow and um, they fished and they walk, he walked everywhere and he got to know the shepherds. His, his two uncles were, were farmers, three uncles were, were farmers sheep farmers of you know of some standing so you got to know all the shepherds and um and you see that a lot in his early short stories and and uh, and writings and he never lo- lost them in 1934 i think he he told the no doubt bemused mps in in parliament that he would rather take the opinion of a of a scottish shepherd than all the all the you know the government heads of europe which they must have thought what <laughs> <laughs> but in a, but he, he sort of meant it really he thought there was a kind of deep knowledge and understanding inherent in these unlettered well unlettered they're not completely unlettered but these men who lived in the open air in this extraordinary landscape, who read only the Bible, but had a uh, were interested in liberal politics, uh, had had these qualities that that pastoral landscape gave them. That's that that's really why he never loses this sense of the of the Scottish landscape. Yeah, I want to ask a bit about his his relationship with his wife, because that was obviously hugely important, and there's the. Chapters in which you describe their courtship, or chapter in which you describe their courtship, it's you know to somebody of the you know my generation or below, it's sort of almost fabulously chaste and yes. traditional. I mean, so there's quite a lot simmering underneath. Yes. actually. <laughs> um, I, I, but it was a love match, wasn't it? It was. It definitely was. Uh, one thing I I did grow up with was a, I think an unfair sense that it was a matter of calculation him marrying. Into the English aristocracy because he wasn't he wasn't posh obviously um, absolutely not no he ended up Lord Tweedsmuir but uh, yes but through his own efforts in yeah. fact but, but that by marrying Susie he he that the whole of the the sort of ruling class pre-war ruling class was open to him well that was certainly true but he was in his early thirties he was already very much in that milieu he wouldn't have met her otherwise actually and what's fascinating about the courtship. And I particularly enjoyed, really, especially as I had a lot of new material to work on, a whole lot of letters that that turned up in a cousin's cupboard, which were fantastically useful from this point of view. Which was these pre... Was this their their love letters? No, really letters between Willie and India and and home is the the difficulties there were over the the marriage. And they didn't come from the Grosvenors and the Stuart Wortleys and all these sort of you know, aristocratic contacts, uh, well, relations of Susie, they came from his mother, who thought that him marrying a aristocratic English Anglican was just just the end. She wrote, you quote, rather slightly, not quite snotty, but distinctly reserved really, letter that she wrote, so. her, her on, wrote her future daughter-in-law on their engagement. Uh, absolutely. And um, it was thanks to Susie that after their first child was born, Alice, in you know, just, you know, the year after they were married, that Susie was prepared to allow her mother-in-law in on all of that. And that's when the thaw really, really happened. And it says a lot for Susie that she recognised that 
that this was the way to to do it. And they became firm friends, actually, and um, Susie was very good to her. She wasn't a very easy woman, but she had... Helen she, wasn't easy. Helen, yeah. yes, but she she had she had sterling qualities, but she was rather narrow-minded, really. But yes, I very much enjoyed writing about the wedding too. Nobody had ever bothered to write about the wedding before, but there's it was in all the newspapers, and there were drawings of her outfits and and a list of their wedding presents and who was at the wedding. I mean, it, it was straight, and it was St George's, Hanover Square, so it absolutely was straight out of Vanity Fair. And a book that JB very much enjoyed, so I think he will have uh, smiled wryly about, you know, the, the fact that he was in Vanity Fair. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. I enjoyed that. And you're, you know, as you've said um, I think before we before we started this recording, you said people are always saying to me, you know, where are the skeletons in the closet? Did he have affairs? Did he? But he doesn't seem to have. There doesn't seem to have been anything other than what it looks like. You know, is that uh, right? That, that's right, and I, I I do think that people find that a bit frustrating. But but I I can't conjure this out of the air. It, there is no evidence. I mean, admittedly, people were very very much more uh, reticent in letters and all the rest of it. But there really is no sort of, as it were, collateral evidence that he that he strayed in, in any way. Why should he particularly? I mean, it, it's not necessary for the creative spirit. You know? <laughs> she had a very long widowhood, of course. And she you, did. I mean, one of the poignant bits in the book is your description of your increased acquaintance with your grandmother when you got old enough to drive and go and see her. You know, what sort of what was she like? And how you say she didn't talk all that much about JB. No, no. Well, she was a, as is obvious in the book, she was a reticent person in a reticent age. And I think the gap between us was just too great. But that wasn't to say that she didn't take an interest in me. And she was very kind to me. My my mother died when I was 15, and I, I really needed a sort of cheerleader. And she was very good at that. She wasn't like anybody else's granny I'd ever met, because, you know, she talked about German poetry and, and that sort of thing. She would send me her memoirs, and um, she talked about knowing H.G. Wells and Arnold oh, Bennett and all, all these people. So, as I say, she wasn't like anybody else's granny, but she was very kind to me and very encouraging. She hadn't gone to university, and her formal education was decidedly sketchy. And so, though she was very well read, she felt the lack. And my my eldest half sister went to Harvard, and and then I went to Cambridge, and and you you could tell that was a source of satisfaction to her that the that the women in the family were you know were doing just as well as the men. That's good. You, you, the other thing she felt the lack of was J B. The same you say I can't remember the phrase you used, but more or less that the stuffing had been knocked out of her by his death. Yes, I, I couldn't think of a more elegant expression than that, but I, I think that I think you was... you did a slightly more elegant <laughs> expression than that. that much more I mean, I have known people who could not talk about somebody they've lost, not 10, 20, 30, 50 years afterwards, and I think she was probably one of those, that their life together had been so interesting and exciting and... She would have felt that they were 
often in the sort of thick of things. I mean, he was spectator and actor in many of the great dramas of the of the first half of the 20th century, including the abdication crisis and the toings and froings after Munich. His, his friends, uh, he, you know, he stayed with Roosevelt at the White House. He was the first British man Britain ever to address both houses of Congress. You know, she she had lived a fascinating life with him. And admittedly, you know, it, it had its downsides. Particularly, government house in Ottawa could be pretty constraining. But um, you you know, when she lost, he was only sixty four when he died. I mean, it's phenomenal, isn't it? He did all that in sixty four years, and she had, I think, more than thirty years of widowhood, and it must have just felt like a sort of coda to a life rather than a real life yeah speaking of codas you mentioned canada and the you know government house in ottawa not being the center of things and you know when he went to be governor general of canada he i mean he was expected to stop writing and publishing and having films do you think he i mean he obviously Responded quite. He described Canada as you know a country of the larger air. You know he yes. was kind of quite excited, and he yes. said you know I, I an immediate his lovely line in his letter of his sort of pros and cons. You know an immediate peerage might revive mother. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah. you know, there were advantages to his going to Canada, but was it? Do you think exactly? I mean, was it a sort of backwater after what he'd been doing and being in the thick of it? Uh, he, I think sometimes he felt like that. He said he felt like a, uh, an 18th century laird in Sutherland in Scotland while, you know, Burke and Fox are slogging it out in the, in, you know, in the House of Commons and the revolution's going on in France. But things did happen in Canada and his, uh, particularly his connections with Roosevelt. were he, he wasn't completely out of the swim, by, but most of his diplomacy was done behind the scenes and I don't think we'll ever know entirely how much. Some academics think that he was really quite important in the in the sort of american canadian british sort of triangle after the, uh, his influence even after the second world war but it's impossible to know because so much of it is not written down and do you think i mean you you've said you think if he'd concentrated just on his writing he might have written i mean he's got a line somewhere about the you know extraordinary hard difficult dedication i think i'll, I'll dig it out i think it's the no man can hope to be a great writer save by the restraint, the pains, the hard and bitter drudgery of his art. And you, you know, as you've said, you think because he didn't quite give himself to that entirely, he never wrote as great a novel as, or as great a book as he might have. Do you feel similarly with public life? Had, you know, do you think he achieved all that he could have potentially achieved in public life? No, uh, but I think that his personality was such that he was never going really to go all the way. In, in politics, particularly, his elbows weren't sharp, and they, you don't—you don't have to have sharp elbows to succeed. It certainly helps. He never got around him a, a sort of a gang that had to be, you know, of politicians that had to be sort of appeased by, by office. He, he fatally saw the other chap's point of view much too easily. I mean, one of his closest associates in the House of Commons was a chap called Jimmy Maxton, who was one of the so-called Red Clydesiders, who'd been um, imprisoned during the First World War for, for stirring up 
dissent in the shipyards, you know, but they happened to go to the same school in the Gorbals and, and they remained friends. So, um, you know, he's, that kind of lack of partisanship. And he was also... Some would see it as a virtue, of uh, character at least. Yes, <laughs> I, certainly of character. And he was also MP for the Scottish Universities, which was, you know, he hadn't really had to climb up all the way up the greasy pole. That was, you know, you 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 just, you know, under, graduates who uh, had two votes until 1948, amazingly, and so all he did was write an election address, and and the and the sort of postal ballots came in. So it wasn't the the sort of rough and tumble of normal politics. And I think I think quite a lot of politicians thought that he was a bit Olympian, frankly. And you know, his speeches in Parliament were, they were pretty cerebral, really. I mean, he's a great stylist, both as a writer and a speaker. But he, you know, he, he wasn't—he wasn't really an orator, and he certainly didn't—he he didn't have that kind of sort of passion for it. I think. I think partly because he had so many other interests. But he, you know, he felt he'd serve. You know, he did a lot of good work as well. Pilgrim Trust, for instance, he was one of the founding trustees of the Pilgrims Trust, Pilgrim Trust, which still survives doing brilliant work and also he was one of the founder governors of the British Film Institute even before he met Hancock um, Hancock Hitchcock. Hitchcock. <laughs> Hitchcock he he was already speaking in Parliament about the importance of some kind of organization not government run that could archive films and could teach people how to make films and and all of that and of course the BFI goes from strength to strength as well so these were these were good worthy projects but they weren't they weren't going to get him into the cabinet well that's a, maybe a lack of a lack of vanity in him do you think well he wasn't without vanity he could never quite quite let go of the fact that he he had come a very long way and those of us who haven't had to come as far perhaps don't understand what that's like. You know, Smeaton Road in Parthead was, well, it's now a post-industrial wasteland, but it was n- never very glamorous. And that's where he sp- spent his childhood, you know, uh, and then, of course, Glasgow. And um, so I think I think the fact that he, though Canada didn't want him to go with a peerage, George V wasn't having any of that. I think he was pleased that it was a, public sign uh, but he was probably also just as pleased as getting um, getting the companionship of honor in 32 because uh, that was the sign that that he'd he'd made it as a as a writer you're entitled to be pleased with the CH I, I think I think so I think so <laughs> um, can I end by just asking you I guess a sort of straightforward question if you know we know that still to a certain extent he's out of fashion Not as much as the 50s and 60s, where people were pretty snarky about him, actually. Because he was a relic of a sort of pre-war Yes, absolutely, Edwardian. Edwardian, um, He was wrongly accused of anti-Semitism. And I really do think I nailed that in the book. Pretty. I don't don't know what you think, but um, but um, uh, the the evidence really is that he was a philo-Semite at a time when... Having Jewish no, somebody, affairs. somebody has said Philo Seamite is an anti-Seamite who likes Jews. <laughs> well, let's not let's, let's not uh, get into labels. But yeah, all yeah. I know is that he worked on Jews' behalfs, both in this country and by publicising the plight of 
German Jews in the early 30s. He didn't do his own political ambitions any good because there, there were elements of anti-Semitism in the Tory party in the 30s. So, um, you know, if he, if he wanted to get on, he should have left the Jewish question alone. Yeah. What I was going to say is he's out of fashion, maybe not so much as in the 60s. If you were trying to sell him to a millennial or somebody, you know, a literate person in their 20s, you know, and you were saying this, you know, this is why you should read Buchan and this is what you should read. What would you, after, of course, your own excellent book, what would you, what would you press <laughs> on them? What would you say is the point of entry for somebody who wants to, wants to know what Buchan was all about? The thing about it, even his lightest fiction, there's a deep, serious purpose to it, which is informed by his religious convictions. There, he knew that there was a battle of good and evil in the world, and it was nip and tuck. And in that way, his books are like Tolkien or, you know, or J.K. Rowling or, or anybody else. The, the, the battle between good and evil forces go, goes on. And he was dealing with that as a, as a, as a subject, really, or rather that it's behind even, even his, uh, his light-hearted fiction, possibly not Tom McNabb, but most of them anyway. And that never dates, I don't think. He tells a rattling good story. I mean, really you does. know, <laughs> even if, you, you know, it's a bit dated sometimes and, you know, people use expressions that we don't use now and all the rest of it, they're unputdownable. So, you know, I don't know. Um, well, my grandfather pressed Buchan on me as a teenager and I absolutely... And which, which did you start with? And, and I think I did start with the 39 Steps, but I did the, the Hostages and Green Mantle and, you know... Yes, Mr Stanfast and, yeah, and John McNabb and um, they, they all have a sort of esprit about them, which is very attractive. So it doesn't really matter where you start. Good. Um, so publishers... Bring them back into print. And oh, well, a lot stop of, by reading Ursula's book. A, a surprising number are in print, actually. Um, the 39 Steps has never been out of print, but I'm, I'm not sure Greenmantle has either. But uh, no, there's plenty, and you can download the, the, the whole lot, the whole, the whole works. And I think for, you know, for people who've read the thrillers but want to, want to go a bit further, then the, the complete works is where you should start with the short stories particularly, some of the poetry, the historical fiction, that sort of thing. Historical fiction really doesn't date, and his historical imagination was extraordinary. Ursula Buchan, thank you very much. Thank you. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. Very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.